Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Sarah Hennies, who is a composer based in New York, whose work, in her own words, is concerned with a variety of musical, socio-political and psychological issues, including queer and trans identity, love, intimacy, psychoacoustics and percussion. I've been enjoying Sarah's work for quite a few years now, and I think the first thing that really drew me into her music was just how it rewards persistence. There's so much to gather from Sarah's music. She uses often uses ideas which seem to be on the surface compositionally simple, but then reveal themselves to be inexpressibly complicated, simply by unravelling over time. The things that they tell you about the room in which you're situated, the room that the instruments are situated in, the tonal construct of the instruments themselves, reverberation, just the dynamic between listening and time. There's so much to gather, and whenever I've reviewed Sarah's music, I've only been able to get some of it down because I could go on and on, but also there's a certain aspect of the experience which like all amazing experiences just fall slightly outside of reach of what I can really conjure into words I'm still trying so Sarah picked some wonderful records and you can find out more about Sarah's own music and her own wonderful records at sarah-hennies.com you can find out more about this episode at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening but there's also information about Sarah's picks and links to her own music as well. And that's enough preamble. This is a really lovely conversation. It was so great to speak to Sarah. I hope you enjoy it. This is Sarah Henney's on Crucial Listening. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, how are you? Very good. How are you doing? Uh, good. So thank you so much for coming on the show today uh, and bringing three important albums with you as well. Before we get into the choices that you've come with today, I wanted to ask about how your 2019 is going so far. I understand you've been doing quite a lot of travel and quite a few shows. So how's it all been? Yeah, yeah it's been mostly great. It's been very very exhausting um i've really been going kind of non-stop with both performing and composing since about last september um really with like a very little break even at christmas and new year's it was like i was in south carolina for a recording session three days before christmas wow. <laughs> and, and then like moving at the same time and just all it's been it's been a really really nuts but really great several months um i was i had been working full-time in offices since I finished grad school, which was over 15 years ago. Um, So I've just become an honest-to-God, full-time self-employed musician uh, a little less than a year ago. So it's been really great. I'm I'm really, like, working my ass off, but, you know, it feels good. Wow. So how's it been for that first year? I mean, has uh, your relationship with making music changed 
now you'd be able to uh, make that your kind of primary focus for the day? Um, I would, it's only changed in that everything just kind of feels better. Right. Um, it's like the, the amount of time it takes me to like make a new piece is, is much shorter. Um, cause you know, I'm not tense and stressed out from having been at work all day. Mm. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I, I feel overwhelmed and like I'm on overdrive, but it's not as far as like the actual making of stuff. I, I it's seemingly, I wouldn't say I have unlimited energy for it, but, uh, I have a lot. Right. <laughs> it was like, I think I, I came back from Los Angeles maybe a month ago and I was just like, ah, yes, this, it, I do indeed have a limit and we have found it. <laughs> Uh, I had, you know, I had a week or two off after that concert, and then I've got some time off now. I I was gone for almost all of February um, in a few different places, and then in Scandinavia for two weeks. And so, uh, it it really has been like truly great. But I also am truly exhausted. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It must be great to have this fortnight just to reset before you get on a plane again, huh? Yeah, and it's there. I don't have any more of these like. Well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm leaving for three weeks on the 15th, but in the middle week of that is a vacation with my partner in Italy. So oh, uh, it's, it's not like a three week tour or anything. It's I, I get an, an honest to God vacation yeah. because the, the soonest that we could take our honeymoon after we got married was two and a half years later. <laughs> <laughs> I find with those, it's either the next week or it's, you know, it is that far down the line, isn't it? Yeah, it, but uh, it, it, it'll be really fun. And then I'm going to Chicago for a week after, right after that. And then um, I, I'll, I'll be off more or less most of the time for the next, probably the rest of the year. So you're, you are coming over to the UK quite soon. In fact, by the time this comes out, you will have been to the UK. Yeah, I'm excited. I was supposed to come to the Audiograft Festival in Oxford last year, actually, but I couldn't because of my job, because I had been taking so much time off and I had been in Sweden not long before that and uh, I was like well I can't come but will you invite me next year and then they did so now I'm coming oh and that's I'm a, great yeah I, I really like um, Patrick Farmer quite a lot and we've never actually met in person so I, I'm really excited to come over and you are bringing the uh, gather and release that you're going to be playing at Audiograft yeah I'm going to play that at Audiograft and then I'm playing a few other shows at uh, London, Birmingham and Bristol where I'm going to play a different shorter piece um, also for vibraphone but that involves a bunch of audience members um, doing this kind of simple bell ringing part Nice, yeah in fact I think I saw you doing a call out for people online there Yeah, yeah exactly, it's it's the, the other the sort of ensemble parts are, are really really easy to play and it's very quick to put together but the results are, are, are really beautiful and with Gather and Release, I mean, as I understand, that's a work that's uh, been recorded and out for a couple of years. I mean, it's cool to see that that's a piece that you're still playing and still interacting with. How has that been? As uh, you know, have you felt uh, your relationship with that piece changing over the course of you know playing it over the course of several years? Uh, not exactly. It's not like this piece of my contralto where I was present. I've been presenting it like basically constantly. It's it's more when the album was new. I was playing it, you know, kind of a lot. But again, I had a job, so it wasn't at the level of frequency that I am now. And I still just I 
I don't think when I play it now, I still feel the same excitement that I felt when I first made it. And I, t you know, I don't, I try not to play the same thing twice in the same city. So I, I'm kind of, I haven't been to England in, in four years. So, uh, I still felt like that's kind of like really the, the strongest solo performance that I have to offer. Um, so I, I really wanted to do that for, for audiographed. And I think I, I read about, and in fact, I heard when I was listening to the piece that involves this, gosh, I can't remember the name of the technique, but a technique that's used in trauma therapy. Oh yeah. The, the therapy is called EMDR, but there's this alternating clicking, clicking sound on about half of the album that called bilateral stimulation. That's it. That's yeah. a, it's a component of this weird type of talk therapy. Yeah, how did that find its way into the composition? I had, several years ago, probably 10 years ago now, I had done this EMDR therapy uh, because my regular therapist recommended it. And um, it, it's hard to explain briefly like what all is entailed in this, but there is always some kind of outside element of some regular alternating thing, either someone like tapping on your knees or a light moving back and forth or a sound moving back and forth um, that is constant throughout the therapy. And I remember my, the guy who was doing this for me at the time telling me that he was like, oh, you, you know, you can do this tapping on yourself. It's like it's like a re relaxation tool. Just don't try to do EMDR therapy on yourself. But he he was like, yeah, when I'm holding my daughter, I'll I'll tap on her back like this, and I made this track of this. It's a um, a sample I made of a one single clave strike that I made into this alternating thing, and it sat on my computer for probably more than five years, and then. You know, I hoped that I would use it in a piece one day, and then when I was working on gather and release, uh, I kind you know I realized that was the moment. <laughs> and in terms of the live presentation of that piece as well, I mean, how easy has it been to transpose that piece into something that works within a performance context? It actually works really well, um, which is part of the reason that I still really like to play it because um, it's not like a lot of my older work where it's really dependent on me having like a certain kind of acoustic or space to play in. Mm. I mean, you know, there are types of rooms that I prefer, but uh, it really is just an unamplified vibraphone with and then pressing play on an iPod and, it, you know, that's it. And right. uh, it really, it, 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 it comes off really well, I think. And you've also got a residency in Chicago and then a new piece. I don't know, are those two connected, the residency uh, and the piece? Kind of. The, the, I'm doing a, a week residency at the School for the Art Institute in their sound department. And Lou Melozzi, the head of the sound department, kind of connected me with the Chicago Renaissance Center and asked if I would want to do a, a public concert at the end of the residency. And... Um, I have this new piece that I wrote for a duo in Tennessee uh, called The Reinvention of Romance that they had commissioned me to write them a very long piece. And uh, I had always wanted to do a really long piece for two people. And so I was like, oh, you know, I kind of checked in with them and I was like, what do you mean by very long? <laughs> and, and, you know, they, they basically said, go crazy. And so I didn't have like a target duration i knew i knew i wanted it to be more than an hour long but i borrowed a cello from someone and i just 
kind of kind of the same way that I wrote the guitar piece that I have uh, really you know I don't play cello but I, I know enough about the cello to make sound with it and just I, I would mess around with it and I wrote down any fragment that I liked and almost all of them ended up being part of the piece and then we kind of arranged them in order and wrote the percussion part at the same time um, and I'm, I'm this is it's the the new thing that I'm most excited about doing, even though I'm not actually playing on it in Chicago. <laughs> but I think I am gonna I'm gonna play it myself in a couple cities. But um, it was commissioned for the this duo called Two Way Street in in Knoxville, Tennessee. So they're gonna come up and give the first performance of it. So I'm 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 really excited about that. I think I read in an interview that you did. I don't know how recently, but you were looking to do pieces that centered on the idea of intimacy i think in that interview you perhaps spoke about the potential of having musicians that are like touching as they're playing or being incredibly close to each other i mean is this piece uh something that is kind of a, a an outgrowth of that way of thinking or that desire to do something based on the idea of intimacy yeah totally and and this is actually a a sublimely perfect segue into one of the albums I chose to talk about. <laughs> I figured it might be actually. <laughs> but but um, yeah, I, 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 we had my trio Meridian with Greg Stewart and Tim Feeney had this plan to do a piece for six musicians, the three of us plus three other people. And I was going to do it as this kind of like triple duo thing where each duo like you say was like really close together and maybe touching sometimes and that it didn't up working out that didn't end up working out that way and that became kind of a different piece than i had intended but i had always i had always had this vision of like you know two people just sharing space for a really really long time and um i've been working a lot over the past few years with this music of kind of like repeating patterns that I feel like kind of a little bit mirror what it's like to, you know, really, really spend a lot of time with someone that like really consists of mostly doing the same thing over and over again, you know, waking up, going to work, eating a meal, taking the dogs for a walk, whatever. It's like most of your lives consist of doing things that you do, you know, basically every day. Yeah. (laughs) And so I I got really into the idea of making pieces that, that kind of mirror that relationship and that because you know my i was in one very long relationship prior to the one that i'm in now and i have the same feeling now with a, a, di- a different partner that it's like the longer you spend with that person the I'd, i i i don't know what i think it was the opposite unfortunately <laughs> for my ex but i i felt that the, the the longer that i spent with someone you know kind of the more routine your lives become but i didn't find that my interest or like love for that person was changing that it, that if anything it's like the longer you spent with them the more connected i felt yeah and so I, I thought that would be a really you know kind of beautiful thing to do as you know a piece of music i mean it's certainly something that i mean perhaps that's why i find it so resonant with myself because it's a difficult thing to pinpoint but also yeah. uh, as you say um as routine starts to ossify in the life with you and a partner i think it so certainly for me it's become more difficult to express to, to express to people uh, on the outside what it is about that relationship which is so uh, electrifying and what's so enjoyable and it becomes yeah this, totally and and that's certainly something I feel with repetitious music where it's you know the novelty of the idea is gone but some suddenly something that's less immediately expressible is 
is is weaving itself into into the state of listening yeah exactly and and i really like working with these concepts of like things that are hard to describe that um you know a lot of my, my piece contralto that i've talked about is that when you ask trans or gender non-conforming people to describe the experience of dysphoria like no one can really do that right um no the, you can but you can't do it in a way that really communicates what that's actually like and i feel like w- what you just said is is pretty much the same kind of thing it's like you spend 30 years with the same person it's like how do you there's so much complexity in that relationship and like time and, and investment that like how could you possibly like explain to someone what that feels like yeah absolutely but you but you can like make something that sort of reflects that and and shows it you mentioned that this topic of conversation makes a nice segue into your first record i've got a feeling if i've made the right connections here i think i know what this is going to be but i'll I'll let you introduce it and, and tell me what your first important record is sarah um, it's the uh, box set of the Belgian composer whose name I hope I'm pronouncing properly, Baldwin Oosterlink. Uh-huh. And um, the, the reason that I say it's a perfect segue is that um, he has a piece called uh, The Point and the Line that was the inspiration for a lot of the stuff that we were just talking about in terms of like me making my own music and that the whole box set, as soon as I heard it, it was like finding treasure or something. It's like... You, you know, it's a dream. It's four CDs of music from the late 70s by a composer I've never heard of who seems to have this totally unique, fully formed vision that I have never heard of before. Like, it, it, it was like, it, it really was like discovering secret treasure or something. And uh, But I got fixated on this one piece in particular called The Point in the Line that is really, really simple, where it's just someone bowing... On, an, on two of the strings inside of a piano, like kind of alternating between one note and then another. And then at some point he, I think he was making all these things himself, probably alone. And so it's all overdubbed him recording himself where he recorded this bowing part and then added on top of it, just these single plucks of some kind of like weirdly dampened piano string. Mm-hmm. So it's like everything about it is recognizable as like, yes, this person is using a piano, but none of it sounds exactly like a piano either. There's like something a little off about the sounds. And um, strangely, the the booklet that comes with the box set is just full of his diaries of writing about different pieces. And he doesn't really talk about this piece that much. But um, I don't know how he feels about it, but I I kind of interpreted this as um, sort of, you know, the idea that, in terms of, of love and like being with the person that there's someone out there who's supposedly, you know, for you specifically, like the idea of the one. And that this piece doesn't really ascribe to that. That it feels like the sounds are almost interchangeable. Like you could replace the pluck with some other sound. Like you could stick any two things together and if you play them with the right kind of focus, then like they will quote unquote sound right. Right. And that's what really the whole box set is like that. It's just full of stuff that doesn't make sense. But there's some, it just has this incredible power and ambiance and feeling to it where it just, everything just feels like perfectly placed, but, but not calculated or, um, cerebral at all. It's, it's just, it's, 
if, if obviously I can't say that like I have a one favorite album of all time, but it is just about the best music I've ever heard. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I talked about it in my wedding vows. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Cause it, you know, I was trying to, um, you know, our vows weren't exactly like, you know, like for richer or for poor or whatever, you know, we just kind of wrote, you know, nice things about each other. And that, 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 that piece to me mirrors the kind of like, utopian idea of of um you know two people being together in fact i mean this is really interesting that you took that approach to your vows and this is more just personal intrigue but did you tell each other what you were going to say before you um got to the day or was the first time you heard each other's vow like on that day we went to a cafe one day with the the purpose of we sat across from each other silently writing our vows and then when we were done we switched computers and showed each other oh, and then we wow. were both we were both like weeping at the table oh. so we did a good job <laughs> and hers were pretty similar actually but like with totally different subject matter but it was kind of the same but the the, the you know it, that's just one piece in four CDs of this box set and it all has kind of a similar feel, but there's there's so much weird stuff on here. Like there's there's a piece called "Sweet for a Bondage Room," where in in his diary he is basically like, yeah, somebody commissioned me to write them music to be played in their like S and M dungeon, but I really don't know anything about this stuff or have any interest in it. So <laughs> like, it, really talking about it, like um, he doesn't even understand like the thing that he's writing the music for. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, there, there's more than one track where he mentions that he was getting really into recording voices of, of um, mentally disabled people, and which sounds really problematic until you hear the music. And it's just it. I don't even know how to describe it. It's just just the most. I remember when one of the times Michael Pizarro was in Austin where I used to live and he came on my radio show. And I had this piece called Refuge playing, and yeah. we were kind of chat- chatting over the music. And finally, after like three or four minutes, Michael just stopped mid-sentence and was like, what are we listening to? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it really, the, the, just from start to finish, all four discs are, are just amazing. Yeah, it's funny you bring up that Refuge piece, because I think that's an example of, for me, listening to it today, of that idea of something played with persistence until it feels coherent uh yeah because certainly to begin with i was like gosh this is a lot um but then everything felt like it was melding at around six minutes to to into something that felt like actually that all the parts were there for a very explicit purpose yeah and it doesn't feel it's weird but it doesn't feel like creepy exactly it just feels kind of surreal or something that Mm. like like it has its own logic um and that it really, you know, not just the voices, but like all, and this is, I think, one of the reasons that this thing, that I really identified with this thing, it just feels like he has this kind of deep love and attachment for the material that he's working with, hmm. that, which to me, you know, uh, repeating a sound over and over again, that that's kind of, you're saying like, I love this sound, so I want to hear it over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and there's, um, yeah. and you mentioned that this record's kind of like buried treasure i'm intrigued as to how you actually came across it in the first place um i think i saw it 
Oh, I remember. I got it. I, I'm still on it, but it, it's not such a thing anymore. But there's this BitTorrent site called IndieTorrents that um, an old, old friend of mine was one of the founders of, which is how I found out about this thing. But uh, there was a good, you know, five to seven year run where it was like I didn't even need to go anywhere else to find out about music because it was just this endless stream of weird, obscure records. Um, that, you, you know, were being stolen. <laughs> but but it, it was the kind of situation, it was the site where anything on a major label was not allowed on the site, uh, both for curatorial and legal reasons. But it was just the, the perfect utopian version of file sharing, where it was like, I never, n- not necessarily the Oosterlink, but all kinds of stuff, where I was just like, I never in a million years would I have ever heard of this music had I not gotten it on this website. Right, yeah. And, and I think someone had uploaded it there, and I saw that it was a composer with a weird name and the dates were like kind of a while ago and so i was just kind of like oh that sounds interesting and then um (laughs) you know i heard it and then immediately bought the thing and um yeah that that was how i heard it but then i remember right around the same time i started googling it and and i had seen that uh keith fullerton whitman's uh Mimoroglu music was selling it and he he said the same kind of like treasure comment that he was like oh it's so rare to just have this like fully formed vision of a composer we've never heard of just dropped into our laps out of nowhere <laughs> um and i mean i'm sure people have heard of him but i mean he's still alive i don't know i remember i asked the the label who put it out once what he's been up to like how come there hasn't been any music since 1978 and uh they told me that he preferred to do things where he could have a direct like uh, physical connection with the audience so like he only wanted to present things where he could be in the room with the people experiencing them so he stopped making recordings oh wow yeah, so he's so, still doing shows then? Yeah, he's still around. Like I remember a few years ago, I, I've never asked him about this, but Jason Leskely, I posted to Facebook one day that he was playing a show with, with Oosterlink and um, was really excited about it. Wow. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's, he's older, but he's not super old, I don't think, uh, and seemingly still around. You know, he has a website, but, you know, just kind of mysterious and seemingly not interested in kind of participating in any sort of like promotion of himself yeah yeah which made my job tricky today but um right <laughs> <laughs> but having the music in isolation actually i think was was interesting in itself to just have this as the only uh point of connection with whoever this person was right and that's how i heard it too it's you know you just press play on a thing you got off the internet that you literally know nothing about and you know that is the last thing that i thought i was going to get is is <laughs> this music yeah. like it it's just it's just unbelievable I, I i can't gush about it enough So let's move to your second record now, Sarah. Uh, if you give me the name of it, and then also a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Uh, it's um, Return Visit to Rock Mass by Mahershalal Hashbaz. They're a Japanese group. 
And uh, what is it about this record that led you to pick it as one of your important records? This is, it's kind of similar to the Oosterlink, actually. It was another thing, I think around 2003, I saw on Soulseek, and I saw a band with a weird name with all Japanese song titles, and there was over 80 tracks on the album. And it's like, well, I have to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's another thing that I almost can't even really explain why I like it so much. But it, it's totally different from Oosterlink, obviously. But um, Tori Kudo is the main artist in this group. Although I think for a lot of the band's life, which I think started in the early 80s or maybe late 80s, um, it, was, it was always been kind of a collective, but it was sort of a core group for a while. And apparently that's not the case anymore. But Tori Kudo is the lead musician and, and songwriter, composer, and um, the group, when you hear their music, it kind of sounds like they haven't rehearsed or something. <laughs> and um, a lot of people have called him a naivist, which I find like really stupid and condescending because it's like this person is so obviously like doing what they're doing very intentionally and like... It's sometimes it's very funny, but it's also, you know, like really, really great art, I think. Yeah. And um, it's just the idea that he's some kind of like naive outsider, I think, is, is, is just like totally wrong. But I guess I haven't seen anyone saying that in a while. But anyway, Return Visit to Rock Mass is, is kind of, I think, widely considered to be their sort of like defining statement. It's a, it's a triple album with like I said like 80 something tracks on it and most of them are under a minute long and he he has he himself has said a lot of times that he uh is intentionally allowing for mistakes in the music because uh that it's it mirrors our real life that way hmm. that's so nice <laughs> and it's and it's another one of these things that just really appeals to me because like it's very funny and playful but the music is if you can get past the fact that like oh they can't play their instrument or they can't play these songs that the the music is actually really unusual like it's one of these things where again when i pressed play on it it was like i've never heard anything that sounds even remotely like this in my life before but unlike the oosterlink you know it's it's in a way kind of conventional music like it's often very pleasant sounding and uh you know very tuneful but because of the way that it's played and the brevity of everything, it, it, it is its own kind of weird avant-garde music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've actually, I've had this this quote on my Facebook page probably as long as Facebook, as long as I've been on Facebook that uh, is just Tori Kudo. When someone asked him what kind of musician he was, all he said was, I am punk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's so good. so he you know like he one of my favorite albums of his that just got i don't even think it got written about that much but i saw a couple just brutal really hateful (laughs) reviews of this record called uh c'est la dernière chanson that is two cds with 183 tracks on it wow and um i saw one reviewer in particular was complaining that the silences between tracks were longer than most of the songs (laughs) (laughs) and then you know it it it's another it sounds real and it is really funny but um it's also it's like do, you know do you know anyone who's written 183 of anything right and <laughs> y- you know it's not it's not composed music or i'm sorry it's not improvised music it's music that he has written down and like 
I discovered not long ago that there's a, a tour DVD for this album, which obviously I bought, and it is it is unwatchable. <laughs> <laughs> it's the the concerts are exactly like the album. He'll he'll kind of look around and and look at everybody and be like, okay, everybody ready? And then they'll you know they'll start and they'll go. And then it'll end, and then everyone turns their page, and then he's kind of like looking around, shuffling, like everybody ready? Like, okay, here we go. Like just on and on and on like that, and but not delivered like like comedy at all. And it, I, it's it's just another one of these things that just feels like it was like made specifically for me, <laughs> and and I really you know I'm not that into like really goofy silly music but I, I really like if you can make something that's like kind of funny or playful and humorous but also you know it's still like really really serious work like you know you have to be really committed to what you're doing to make a, a 183 track album right yeah <laughs> absolutely uh, so it, it kind of the the volume of material gives it the, this sort of like makes it harder to cons- you know to write off as a joke Yes, but but I also like that the music is so pleasant, but but has this ability to to enrage people. Um, so it, it's it's very sort of um, subtly subversive. Yeah, I mean, even in terms of the concert that you described, I imagine when the pieces are that short, you don't know when to clap as an audience member, and that's quite disempowering, I guess, for some no, people. No, no, nobody was clapping. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's, it, that was part of it. It's just dead silent, and it's you know like a group getting ready to play like a long piece, and then it's it's like five seconds long. Oh, amazing! <laughs> yeah, I read that a lot of the t- it's isn't it people that have just been I, I think it's like a lot of the time it's non-musicians and then people who've just got the music that day yeah <laughs> I didn't know that actually I was just on tour with Oren Ambarki and Chris Cole recently in last month and uh, they told me that um, that Tori does not allow the musicians to see the sheet music until they're playing it <laughs> um, so you know it, it's like any question that it isn't planned or intentional is is just like totally wrong yeah but and it's this you know it's another thing that i've worked with a lot myself and i you know maybe i would have done these things if i had never heard marshall hashbaz but i've you know i've made multiple pieces now where um kind of an integral part of the piece is me not being able to do this to to actually physically um execute the situation i've set up for myself and then the piece is just kind of whatever happens happens it's like me trying to do something that's obviously not doable um and it's like it's just a totally different kind of music than than you would get if um you were doing something really tightly rehearsed and why does that appeal to you to explore as an idea um i think similar to what tori kudo says that that it kind of mirrors real life that like things aren't perfect in real life and and there are mistakes and um, I, I like to set up these situations where there's just so much complexity to them that that there's not. Uh, I don't necessarily mean musical complexity, but like what musical or conceptual complexity that you don't really know how to react to it. Um, because then you you know the audience really has to start asking questions if they want to come to any kind of conclusion about what's happening, 
And if you if you do things that kind of go outside of the normal rules of music, then then you're kind of automatically putting people in that situation. Yes, of course. Yeah, I saw a film about Tori. Uh, like it's a 20 minute documentary called This Is Our Music. Um, oh yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, so nice. I didn't realize. It, so it mentioned that he's a ceramicist as well, which I thought was perfect. Uh, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, because he talks about the fact that he's not very good, but I love the idea of just with ceramics as well. You've got these indentations of failure that are permanently then. I don't know what the word is for ceramics. You know, heated, frozen, yeah, yeah. entire, and then suddenly that's it. You know, you have to live with those moments of failure. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of like it's not the same type of situation, but it's sort of like what I was saying about you know the long duo piece that it, it's kind of a representation of something that you you know is kind of universal, like yeah, in terms of of. Um, things not being perfect or um having to sort of accept what's happening around you um because you know putting the sheet music people in front of people right before they have to play it is you know setting up a situation where you're not in control yeah exactly yeah um and with a record of this kind of duration i mean how are you listening to this when you listen to it um i i can't say that that i I don't remember the last time I just sat down and listened to the whole thing all at once. Um, but I, I mean, I've been laughing for years that like, if I put my iTunes on shuffle play, it's like 40% Maher and Ivor Cutler. That <laughs> <laughs> it's like every, every third song will be one of those two artists because there's so many tracks on their albums. <laughs> and I, and I have, you know, many albums by both of those people. So it's kind of, you know, I have my favorite tracks, but it's, you know, it's sort of like my favorite supposedly more serious experimental music. It's not something I like put on all the time, or at least not return visit to rock mess. Like Blues Du Jour is a more, is a nicer, like, uh, you know, I'm cooking dinner record or something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's more, it's, it's album length, but, um. You know, there's a lot of music that I love deeply, but I'm I'm not just casually putting it on. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is 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 definitely true of that K Records. You know, the one with 183 tracks. Right. It's like, yeah. It's it's not easy listening, even though it kind of seems like it should be. So let's go to your final record now. Uh, if you can give me the name of it and a bit about why it's important as well. Yeah, it's uh, Anthony and the Johnsons. I am a bird now, and um, I hesitated to pick this because I'm kind of worn out of of um, talking about this topic. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I, as far as I know, it's it's the only. I, I, I'm sure I'm wrong, but it's it's the only prominent record I know of that's like explicitly singing about gender transition Mm. and um and also just 
the the format of that it's these kind of mournful, sorrowful songs just suits the subject matter perfectly, and it, it's just it's just one of the most conventionally beautiful, elegant albums I've ever heard. Where it's just the the perfect match of like artist and material that that I have ever heard. You know the the kind of thing that like young trans kids should be played. And <laughs> <laughs> um, can you remember when you first discovered it? Yeah, I so I had become obsessed with them. Uh, I heard their first album because I'm a huge Baby D fan. Who I I heard Baby D prior to before I heard Anoni, mm. and um, I had seen that D played harp on this other person's album, and I was like, oh, what's that? And uh, this was before I Am a Bird Now had come out, so I, I got I Am a Bird Now like the day that it was released, and. I was already really, really into the first album quite a lot, and then I heard "I Am a Bird Now," and it just—I mean, it's just—it's like totally ne- next level. Um, you know, everything feels more dialed in and more focused, and l- less dramatic and more subtle. Like it, it, I just think it's a perfect album. It's like I think it's about half an hour long, and it—you know—it's over before you even realize it, and it just takes you through so many kind of twists and turns in such a short amount of time um but yeah i got it when it came out and and i i've written about this before too but i just was like so so obsessed with this album like every i'm sure everyone around me was sick of me talking about it because it was one of these things where just like everyone i knew like have you heard this have you heard this and they would just be like we don't like this (laughs) um and you know i remember even people not in like a super mean way but just people like making fun of how gay it was right and it it is extremely gay right (laughs) i I remember that she had said in an interview that after boy george came in and tracked his vocals for the song you are my sister that that anoni had like cried for two days afterward and a friend of mine was like that's the gayest thing i've ever heard Which sounds mean, but it's actually very sweet. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, uh, so this is the first time I've heard this record, which surprised me a lot because I remember it getting a lot of attention. And yeah, it was a huge deal. I was really surprised. Yeah, and I've been a massive Baby D fan for a while and for some reason never circled back or you know went over to Anthony the Johnson's. So this has been... I haven't listened to this enough to really to be even talking about it because it's uh-huh. <laughs> the first listen was a lot. But um, I mean, do you do you have a favorite track on this record? Um, not off the top of my head. Um, I just feel like it. The whole thing is just such a like singular work, like as, as a as an album. Hmm. Actually, "Fistful of Love" was the first song I heard because that was the the single, right? And um. I, I still really love that song, um, if if I had to pick a favorite, and you know that's the kind of like groovy soul R and B song. Um, is that the one with Lou Reed on it as well? It is, yeah. Yeah. Um, which I never really understood. I mean, I get why he's there, but uh, you know his his part is not significant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's all these like really really famous guests throughout this whole album, and they're just like completely. Uh, Eclipsed by Anoni, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I like for this. This is gonna. I feel very cliched saying this, but I really like for today. I am a boy, and uh, I remember reading an interview with her, and she was like, 
said that she was singing it as a joke, that it wasn't even a real song. And someone, you know, people were like, you have to put that on your album. And she was like, I can't put this on an album. It's so silly. (laughs) And then she said it ended up being, you know, the track that seemingly endeared her to more people, that, that it was the most frequently people would come up to her and be like i love that song right (laughs) um so yeah i guess those are my two favorite tracks but it's funny you know when i first heard this album i was not really aware of my own situation at all Uh, and um it's very different listening to this now than it was uh 14 years ago um and it's a lot more sort of dense and nuanced for me lyrically than it than it used to be. It used to be this more sort of like, I wasn't really engaging so much with why I liked it. I just thought it was great music, you know, because it is. Yeah. But, um, and, and there are other things like that too, where it's like years later, you can look back and be like, oh, that's why I did that. Right. Um, yeah. That, that it, it, you know, it, it, a lot of unexplainable things about your life become explainable. And have you seen her live as well? I have never seen her live, and it's I would really like to, but um, I, I I think I kind of missed the uh, prime Johnson's area uh, era that I would have wanted to see. It seems like she has kind of lost interest in the music industry, which makes a lot of sense to me. Because um, I, I just don't think you can become that big of a sensation and not get, like kind of burned out and it's like you can't just make i am a bird now over and over again right and i felt like that's i feel like that's why she made this switch to this more sort of electro pop pops the wrong word but you you know just a totally different style of music because it's like she did kind of make i am a bird now three times like that crying light and swan lights are like they're very different albums but they're all more or less in in the same style and i know a lot of people disagree with me i know a lot of people for them, The Crying Light is, like, their album. But for me, it's, like, I'm increasingly less interested in each consecu- in each um, successive album. But, I, I, you know, I love them all. I, I don't mean to say that, that they're, like, inferior or something. It's just, for me, I Am a Bird Now was, like, the one. Where it's, like, this person has clearly figured out the exact thing that they, that they are supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's... Even I was just saying... Uh, uh, when Mark Hollis died and we were all very upset, mm. but that I remember reading an interview with him um, from around the time that his solo album came out and someone asked him why it took him eight years to make another album after Laughingstock. And he said that Laughingstock was so close to how he imagined music that he didn't know how to do anything else. Ah. That like he, he didn't know how to move forward. Um, My word. And so I always really, you know, I wish we had gotten more music from him, but I really... It's a really intense thing to say and like to realize that you've done something like that. <laughs> right. Where you're just where you're just like just straight up like I cannot think of something better than this. Yeah. And I don't I don't mean like he needed to get better, like he needed to do something that was more good or something, but that that your imagination is just like perfectly encapsulated in this one thing uh is is really amazing. And that and again i love all of the anoni records but but for me i feel like there's this moment before i am a bird now where you can hear this person kind of figuring out their thing and then you get this album and it's just incredible and then everything after that's like really really good but like kind of the same right yeah um and so does that apply as well to the 
I know she put out a record as Anony, I think a couple of years back. Was that one that didn't uh, quite strike a chord with you as well? Yeah, I tried. I it's just not it's just not my thing, and and it's it's really really good music. And um, my friend Leslie in town took her kid to see Anoni like playing that stuff, and they said that it was just that that it was just astonishingly good, which I totally believe. Hmm. But just just the whole kind of palette of of the music of just this kind of like really big bombastic electric electronic music. Uh, is is not like necessarily my thing but i did listen to it several times and and you know it's a great album but it's just not uh it's not my thing yeah no fair Well, Sarah, it's been so great to speak to you about these records and about what you've been up to as well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting with me. Yeah, thanks a lot. And if people want to keep up to speed with what you're doing, is there somewhere best for them to be headed online? Uh, probably my website, which is uh, sarah-hennies.com. Wicked. Okay, great. Well, thanks once again. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. Yeah, thanks a lot.